1: G'day. welcome aboard the Starship Zero G: Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Historical Radio for episode number 1313 one, mm. 1313 <laughs> <sighs> ah, entitled Mexican Go Figure. Our podcast title is "Where in the Pod is Carmen San Diego?" I am Rob Jan and Megan McHugh, and here we are. All sorts of. Things, we're in sort of a Halloweenish mood because it's mm. roll through and, you know, we're all in that sort of strange and unusual place. Exactly. <laughs> I think we'll start off with something a bit more expansive. No, not the expanse, though. We will get to that on Zero mm-hmm. G. Mm-hmm. Star Trek Discovery mm-hmm. Season 3. I never thought I'd be looking forward to disco on Friday nights. <laughs> but there you go. They're dropping one episode per week on Netflix, and I suppose you could also have it on CBS All Access if you're clever mm -hmm. clogs. Well, it's followed on from the previous two seasons. The last season we were fighting Control, which was a rogue AI, Mm -hmm. which had taken over Section 31, the Federation's Covert Operations Group. They're spies, basically.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. that was all sort of disposed of but in order to isolate the Discovery's unique technology and the data that they had collected about control they decided that they needed to fly into the far future Mm -hmm. 900 years they ended up going wow Uh, Michael Burnham also went there in that red angel uh, power armor that she has it allows her to time travel she sort of led the way Mm -hmm. but timey-wimey things being what they are, they got separated in space and time. Oh, Yeah, so season three starts out with Burnham lost God knows where in the universe or when, and with the discovery nowhere in sight. Oh, gosh. And so the opening episode of of this season basically has poor old – Soneka Martin-Green, once again, having to display great emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard some criticism of the fact that she cries a lot and she's very emotive, but she grew up on Vulcan. (laughs) And then she learned what a crockle of that Vulcan (laughs) emotional control was. And I say, give her a break. Yeah, exactly. She's got a lot to catch up with. She's by herself and the discovery is somewhere else. I, I felt like the story arc was going to be get Michael and the Discovery back together again, a mm. bit of a quest. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially since this is 900 years in the future. Things will have changed, mm. and they have a lot, and I would have thought that that would have been a little bit of a, a tease for us to have a quest mm-hmm. to go on. Yeah, at least maybe a couple of episodes.
0: Yeah, drag it out a little, get us really in suspense, rooting for this reunion, etc.
1: And we've got form in science fiction on the screen for this. We had in real time between movies, we had a whole two and a bit years between Han Solo being frozen in carbonite and then him being rescued. Oh,
0: what a cliffhanger.
1: Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) In the Star Trek universe, we had Mr. Spock dying in Wrath of Khan and then being resurrected in Search for Spock again a couple of years later. Of course, yep. Yeah. The pace seems to have picked up in Avengers Endgame after only a year. Mm. Five years in MCU time, but in real time, only 12 months, we had the universe unsnapped. Exactly. And this is a spoiler for the second episode and the first episode of Star Trek Discovery Season 3. Burnham and the Discovery are more or less reunited in the second episode. Oh, so a bit anticlimactic. Yeah. Now, okay, obviously that was not the story they were going to tell, Mm. and maybe they get some points for psyching us, you know, holding up the Vulcan hand salute and then dropping it quickly and going, psych! You know, it felt a bit to me, as I probably said before, a bit like um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, riding out of the castle gates and finding the Holy Grail sitting there on a tinsmith's cart right outside the gates. Mm. And it and just didn't land quite so well for me. Nothing wrong with the stories, though. The actual stories in themselves, in the first two episodes, they go into at least four definite tropes about Starfleet okay. and the Federation. It's actually quite heart-rending. you know. They actually give you, give you the feels because the Federation is no longer really existent. 900 years in the future.
0: Oh, wow. There's a reason
1: for that. And once again, I'm probably putting myself out on a limb here and saying I hope they leave a bit of mystery for that for a few more episodes, (laughs) but I fear that they might be sort of doing a bit of Teflon trek here, non-stick, no consequences really, and they don't Mm -hmm. last. So Mm -hmm. they set these things up and they just go, they're gone.
0: Yeah, quickly resolve them in like the next episode or something. How many in are you so far? Because you said they're dropping one per week.
1: I'm only a couple in. I'm sort of a little bit behind. It's nice that they've got a new character in there. We've got all of the old favourites, uh, including um, Tig, the uh, the engineer uh, Jet Reno, mm. and that's good because she plays very well off of Paul Stamets. And we've got a, a new series regular, David Ajala, who plays a roguish space courier called Cleveland Book Booker, and he has a pet cat called grudge
0: (laughs) that is a lot of sci-fi like kind of throwbacks all in one little little character isn't it
1: (laughs) well grudge is not a little character grudge is a main coon Ah. (laughs) so before you can say flerken (laughs) i'm wondering if grudge is going to have some special thing about her Mm -hmm, yeah mm this is her because book calls her a queen Maybe she actually is a queen. In the Star Trek universe, she could be any number of felinoid aliens, really, in in, in sort of uh, Kittenhood or something. She could be like a, a Cation or a Kazinti. Uh, which is borrowed from Larry Niven's science fiction, of course. And speaking of um, fairly obscure Star Trek aliens who are often just backgrounded, we have actually seen the Kazinti and the Cation on screen in animated series and in movies and in other places, sort of very, very basically. But they've also started throwing in a few background aliens from Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is oh, wow. really good Yeah. And Deep Space Nine. There was a character known as uh, Morn. His uh, type of alien appears in Discovery. It looks great. They've handled the transition because, you know, Star Trek already futuristic technology. You mm-hmm. throw them 900 years into the future, what are we going to encounter?
0: Yeah, that's a doozy. That's pretty cool. That's an. I mean, it's an, a gimmicky idea, but if done well, I'm still here for it.
1: I am. Look, I've been, I've, I'm enjoying it. Those little caveats that I felt as I was watching it going, oh, well, okay, we're not doing that. Well, well all right, let's, let's give us something else that's just as good. It is very evident to me having just binge watched four seasons of The Expanse <laughs> that Star Trek is no longer the only ship in the fleet when it comes yeah. to space science fiction. You know, mm-hmm. it's been a while like that, but now it's really obvious. Mm. Uh, and that's all right, too. It's, it's not a race between the different ships, yeah, the different yeah. franchises, you know. So I'm just glad to have so many high-quality science fiction space shows around.
0: Exactly. We're the lucky ones. We kind of are the ones that are winning, right, because we're getting all these really great shows, like old favourites with a new skin and also these new, interesting, exciting um, stuff like The Expanse, which, yes, we'll get to that. Soon, shortly. Mm.
1: Now, I've got a number of tracks that I can play today, and one of the ones I thought I'd go for was well, we're in our episode of Zero G today is number 1313. Now, it probably doesn't surprise you too much that a number like that has some resonance. Mm hmm. Well, you know, I mean, you've just got in 1313, 13 the year that is, uh, Wang Zhen, a Chinese agronomist back in the day. He was one of the inventors, there were several, of wooden based movable type printing. Oh. So quite an important person back then. And he wrote this really big book about um, agriculture and technology at the time. It was quite important in the 13th and early 14th century. Okay. Thirteen, thirteen. That's the realistic part of it. There's a, an unproduced Boba Fett-centric video game called Star Wars 1313 <laughs> that was uh, unproduced in the second decade of the 21st century
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it was cancelled when Disney shut down LucasArts after they uh, purchased the Star Wars franchise. Mm-hmm. And speaking of games, the Dungeons & Dragons series also has a a series of books, the 1313 books. So it's a whole bunch of things to do with that. Then there's an instrumental progressive Belgian band called Universe Zero, and their first album was called 1313. We could even go so far as to the 1313 movie franchise – which takes its title, the 1313 number, from the address of a Southern California mansion, which is the linking factor behind a number of cheesy beefcake movies. (laughs) Well, the the other factor being that they also have some kind of genre element waved over them about as airily as the shirts that the buff blokes in the cast are not wearing. (laughs) So so they've got some crazy titles in there, 1313, Franken Queen, (laughs) Billy the Kid, UFO Invasion, Hercules Unbound, you know, wow. you know where we're going with this. Yeah. We have Lou Ferrigno in there who used to play the Incredible Hulk on oh, wow. the, the Bill Bixby uh, television series. All right, so I'm not going to do it, go anywhere there. <laughs> <laughs> Instead I'm going to go for a fairly Halloween-y sort of song. Uh-huh. <laughs> Beware the Moon, and it's from the B-movie Monsters uh-huh. from an album called, you guessed it, 1313.
0: Hi, this is Matthew Riley, creator of the Scarecrow and Jack West Jr. series. Welcome aboard the zero g heli carrier on Three Triple Semper Sci-Fi.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that often repeated mantra in there uh, from the song oh, "Beware the Moon" ah. these movie monsters thirteen thirteen was the album, riffing off the fact that today's Zero G is episode number thirteen. Mm. Thirteen. Double trouble. Yeah. If there's anybody who's less superstitious than the Zero G crew, I would not want to meet them. <laughs> Actually I would want to meet them.
0: It's kind of cool for like Halloween time, 1313, yeah. you know. It's all it's all intermixing in a spooky cauldron full of delight.
1: Hmm. Yeah, all munged together. A potpourri. Mm. Now, that little poem that was in the, um, the lyrics there, which they oft repeated, comes from The Wolfman from 1941, the Corn um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. movie. Kurt showmac was the writer. He actually invented that little doggerel bit there. <laughs> doggerel. Uh, yes, he, he created that rather than it being from some ancient folklore. In yeah. fact, A lot of the stuff in The Wolfman went on to become lore Mm -hmm. for lycanthropic movies later on. Interesting, but not relevant. (laughs) (laughs) So our next topic, which is Carmen Sandiego. Mm. Mm. And so I would like to play the main title theme from the Netflix series, the animated show, Carmen Sandiego. It's like little maracas at the end of that. Yeah, it's so fun. <laughs> yeah. And it is a f- really fun series. And you will know that occasionally I do watch these to young adult television series just because I like to be reminded of being young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the song was composed by Jared Lee Gosselin and was performed by Raquel Castro with Ray De La Garza as a music consultant, and it's from the Netflix series Carmen Sandiego. Three seasons so far, mm-hmm. and they've just dropped five episodes of the third season, and that may actually be the entirety of the third season with COVID-19 disrupting mm-hmm. production of shows all over the world. I'm not quite sure about that. The Carmen Sandiego franchise started out as a series of U.S.-American educational video games back in 85, better known as Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, and variations upon that word world as well, Mm -hmm. earth and space and time, Mm -hmm. and even Where in Hell is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, I love it.
0: I used to love those games because they were educational, so they were kind of an accepted game. So you learn a lot about the world and world history, and I used to absolutely love them. They were a core part of my childhood, definitely.
1: good Oh, Now, the character of Carmen Sandiego was developed by David Siefkin. He's taken the name of the Brazilian singer and actress Carmen Miranda and the city of San Diego in California and popped them together. (laughs) Easy as that. Yes. It has been literally a game ever since mm. and also a game show in 1991 and 1997. They have a Carmen Sandiego Day in the U.S. <laughs> at schools because it ties in with the whole educational Ed, theme. There was a, a live theatrical edutainment program in planetariums, which has been shopped around the world. There's been concerts and musicals and all sorts of things. And a very, very popular animated television series from 1994 to 1997. And this had uh, Carmen Sandiego voiced by Rita Moreno, and she was a Puerto Rican actress, dancer, and singer, very well known for shows like, like West Side Story and oh, yeah. dozens of other titles and on television and uh, so on. Uh, and that was a very stylish cartoon, and I think that's where I first encountered Carmen mm-hmm. San Diego, who originally worked for a, an evil organization called VILE, mm-hmm. the ILE. It's like a, a patent medicine or perhaps a poison. Uh, and they were pursued by ACME, Mm-hmm. <laughs> no doubt, the same corporation that had a sideline in mail order um, devices for the Roadrunner and the Coyote to exactly. <laughs> so this new series is it's a Canadian American Netflix action adventure series, two seasons which I've watched and I've just finished watching the third season, all five episodes, and it's just a charming show. Gina Rodriguez voices, Carmen Diego. We know her from a series called Jane the Virgin and also for Law and Order, and she had a role in Deepwater Horizon mm. and Annihilation. She yeah. And she has appeared on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and not surprisingly, she's done a lot of voice acting work. She played Velma Dinkley in um, Scoob. Oh, <laughs> So it kind of makes sense. Now, for people who have given voice in this show include Finn Wolfhard.
0: Yes, old fave. He appeared in Stranger Things, of course, as Mike, and uh, also a similar role. You could say he was in It as well as Richie Tozier. Those are probably his two top roles. He was in the adaptation of The Goldfinch and a few other bits and bobs. He's kind of very big on the money right now, uh, kind of one of the up-and-coming young teen actors from what I believe.
1: He's even voiced Pugsley Adams in the uh, Adams family movie in two thousand and nineteen the The animated one oh, cool. uh, we've also got Paul Nakauchi, uh American Asian actor known for voicing Hanso Shimada in Overwatch in two thousand and sixteen and he plays the character of Shadow Sun in the Carmen San Diego series now we've seen him a lot in um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Homecoming. He's done a lot of um, voice work, of course. So there'll be there are games into his uh, bow, and mm-hmm. also both DC and Marvel animated. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. So played Wong in Doctor Strange: The Sorcerer Supreme animated movie. Oh, cool. So you know, typecast as yeah. <laughs> often it's the case. Anyway, they're all great. It all works. It is extremely educational.
0: <laughs> let's not hold that against it.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's a lot of fun actually because the way it works is they've still got vile, they've still got acme. Carmen Sandiego was rescued after her father's death by Shadow San, who became an instructor at the vile evil academy mm-hmm. and taught her everything she knows about thieving. And, uh, and, yes, okay, and fighting, her, her fighting sensei,
0: and, yep, okay. Yes.
1: All of those things. And he actually, Shadow Son was a ninja, so that adds even more flavor to the pot. And all of this leads to her eventually rejecting Vile. hmm
0: mm-hmm.
1: And this actually happened, I think, in some of the original games. She'd become this sort of anti-hero. Yeah, right. And now in this new series, she basically stops Vile from getting away with stealing things wow. uh, around the world. She travels more than any James Bond. <laughs> And she's basically a shadowy character, which is difficult to describe when you're actually wearing bright red. (laughs) Her signature, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the big hat, the the big coat, her hang glider, which is built into the coat. Of course. Her grappling hook that comes out of a sleeve, her car, her helicopter, even her headquarters, they're all painted, (laughs) you you know, the red thief sort of thing. So Acme is actually still hunting her for a portion of the Carmen San Diego series, mistakenly thinking she's stealing instead of preventing things being stolen. Sometimes she's even taking them back. Oh. So, you know, that causes complications. She's also running afoul of a couple of people from the uh, Interpol organization. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, international thief, what can I say? <laughs> uh, these episodes, we build up in this big search for Carmen's past. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about this show is they keep going to places and to events that actually appeal to me as a costumer.
0: Oh, okay. Such as. Uh,
1: well, the third season is uh, a lot of it's Halloween-based. Ah, uh, yep. Bile crew are setting up masked-based crimes. Um, mm-hmm. They go to Venice. They go to Rio. Yeah,
0: it's very it's, clever. It.
1: Yeah. There's also a weird sort of Australian connection, and antipodean connection. In one of the episodes in this whole series, they do go to Australia. Mm-hmm. One of the characters is based in Australia. There's also a one of the vile crew called the Eel. His first name is Neil, and it's Neil the Eel. <laughs> and he's actually a New Zealander, but constantly being mistaken for an Australian. That old chestnut. <laughs> but you see, this is an educational show, though, so they take pains to, to uh, explain the difference. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I just enjoy the hell out of this show. Oh, there's a cat too. The chief of um, Acme has a Persian long hair named Commander, who lives a bit too close to the fridge. <laughs> so, you know. So there's all this stuff in there. Um, like we start looking for Carmen San Diego's mother, who has a code name of Vera Cruz, and that works out differently to how we might have thought, but brings in another. A great Mexican trope, which I really do love in the show, but I won't give that away. God, the artwork in this show is incredible.
0: It's beautiful. I remember I watched a bit of the first season, and it's such a fun animation style. It's very kind of the lines. It's kind of old detective-y noir-ish, but very colourful. It's very cool.
1: I call it Disney noir. Ooh, yeah, yeah, that's good. It's very 1960s hip-hop. Mm. Disney, which you don't see in all of their movies and cartoons. Which one would be the most? Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. That would be the Disney movie that it reminds me most of in in that sort of style. But, oh, my God, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, that's really cool what they've done with that particular piece. Mm. And the stories are quite sophisticated too, as are the characters. And I can tell that if I was watching this as as a kid, like if I was watching this at the age of, because I was precocious, if I was watching this at four or five, I would yeah. have really enjoyed it. Mm. And I am now as an adult because I yeah. just i just think it's cool. There's an episode where they do a, a break-in to a computer lab mm. and they time it to a performance of Swan Lake. Oh. So they've got Carmen doing the dance of the signets, the you know, sort of sideways, stepping over opening and closing electrical force fields. <laughs> nice. You know, yeah, this is sophisticated stuff. It reminds me of some of those Bugs Bunny cartoons, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm, mm, mm. jump to another animation house. And and I just enjoyed the hell out of it, especially since they were going to places that none of us can go to at the moment.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Bittersweet. But, I mean, this is the kind of content, like, I think it's a bit of a hidden gem. Like, it's got great animation, great story, it's smart, you can learn from it, good for kids, good for adults. This is the kind of stuff we should be making.
1: Yeah. There's a Halloween Haunted House episode. Oh, I love that where they've got a a hacker who's named The Troll. Now, he plays this interesting trope that we get in superhero movies and so on. He actually insists upon being called The Troll, Mm -hmm. like The Batman, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And, of course, everybody makes fun of this because they deliberately use The Troll in sentences when it sounds really odd. (laughs) And it's a little bit Scooby-Doo too because they deliberately make one of the characters scared of ghosts. Oh. (laughs) So, yeah, they play with the tropes. Mm. It's a lot of fun. Look, it's not going to tax you particularly much, Mm -hmm. especially the pandemic, so it's like a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit of fresh air and a break Mm. for me watching this one. Nice. Mm. All right, so i got so many tracks I can play from this today, but I think the one I wanted to play was Carmen. Now, this is not from the popular opera. Mm Mm-hmm or ballet, or whichever one interpretation you want to play for it, but it is actually Lana Del Rey. Now, I played a Lana Del Rey track last week, and I thought I'd just be cheeky and play another one this week. This is from her Born to Die album, Lana Del Rey and Carmen. So obviously it's a clever ruse, Hi, this is Michael Palin, and right now, you are lucky enough to be listening to one hundred and two point seven three Triple rrr FM. Yeah, Carmen. Mm. Lana Del Rey from a Born to Die album. And actually, I thought this has got nothing to do with Carmen Sandiego, but as I, we went through it, I'm thinking, she's got a red dress, she's a bit out there, mm. she's, she's naughty. You know, this is Carmen Sandiego. Diego. This is an origin story on Zero G, yeah. (laughs) Now, Megan, Mm. you are about to delve into another one of your interesting novels that you occasionally bring in to show us that I've actually found quite pleasant to uh, check out, and I think you might be turning me on to American Gothic and, in this case, Mexican Gothic.
0: Yes. So this is the next in the lineup. I've had a chat about a couple of different books recently. So now we're moving on to this little ditty called Mexican Gothic, as Rob mentioned. So it's got a really beautiful cover that kind of sets the scene right away. It's kind of a socialite story, but it's, it's mainly, okay. So let me, let me take a step back. So Mexican Gothic, it's by the author, Silvia Marina Garcia. Um, And she is uh, an author who's done a couple of other works to her name, which actually interests me as well now that I've read this one. So she uh, has done a book called Signal to Noise, which is a kind of fantasy. It seems a little coming of agey. It's a fantasy book set in Mexico City about a girl who realizes that through listening to different music, she can cast different spells, which I thought was a very interesting kind of cool idea. That was her first novel. Then she's also done, and this might interest you, Rob, and, sort of speaks to some of the themes in this book. She did an anthology story collection of a couple of Lovecraftian style stories. She curated these collections. One's called Historical Lovecraft and one's called Future Lovecraft. And it's got a collection in different kinds of thematically Lovecraftian concerns type of thing. So I thought that was pretty cool. So she certainly has an interest in things of that ilk. And she also has written a novel, which I think was published to summer acclaim called Gods of Jade and Shadow. Now that one is a historical fantasy and it's a somewhat of a 1920s fairy tale and it's said to be a bit inspired by Mexican folklore. So it's that kind of a whimsical vibe and then now she's tackled another genre Completely with this one Mexican Gothic look. It's a Gothic haunted house novel, basically. So it's in fitting with the title. I kind of came onto this because I was looking for some Halloweeny type reads, and this is one that's been published recently and has been talked about a lot.
1: Today we've got to stop using the term Halloweeny. <laughs> <laughs> it just cracks me up every time I hear it, and it's a it's a fun movie, but you know we're. <laughs>
0: So this one is sort of, you know, with Rebecca coming out on Netflix and I've started to think a bit more about a bit of gothic literature and reading some haunted house novels. So this premise really grabbed me immediately. So it's your typical gothic haunted house novel. So it has some comparisons to Jane Eyre, Rebecca, but it's fresh in that it is set in 1950s Mexico And it is about a socialite named Nomi. She's living in Mexico City and then she receives a mysterious letter from her cousin, Catalina, who was married quite suddenly to a man, an Englishman, who they no one really knew him and he seems very kind of cold and distant and they were married quickly and unexpectedly and then Catalina was whisked off into this crumbling mansion and now Catalina has sent this letter to our protagonist, Nomi, saying she's in danger and asking for help. So therefore sets our scene. Nomi, of course, being the feisty gal that she is, and she certainly is that. She has a lot of thoughts and feelings in this novel. She's not afraid to express them. And so she's like, "Alrighty." I'm going to head to this uh, high place is the name of the mansion. I'm going to head to this mysterious mansion. It's set in the forest. It is set up above this very strange small town that's also a bit rickety, little bit crumbling as well. And so it's quite steeped in mystery. So she heads there and meets the strange family that lives within the walls of high place and to see what's up with her cousin basically, to see in person what – Catalina is like and if she is ill and possibly needs the help of a psychiatrist. So throughout the course of the book, Nomi has to figure out what is ailing her cousin and unlock all of the sordid secrets that are hidden within the walls of the house. So we've got a bit of a cast of characters going on. The house is just one of them. So we've got her frail cousin, Catalina. Catalina is she's a mess basically, then her cousin's chilly husband who's cold, handsome but, you know, you know, dead behind the eyes, basically. Um, then there's a foul patriarch who just espouses these sick notions of kind of eugenics and all that kind of thing. I don't think that's a spoiler to gently talk a little about that. There's a harsh aunt, of course, who just rules the house with an iron thumb. And then, of course, a sweet, pale younger son who just seems to be the faint shadow of, you know, the humanity that's kind of left in this family. So, None of this is wildly original, but it's kind of cool to see it laid out in a bit of a different format. Yeah. So what do we come across in the course of the book? There is definitely some Lovecraftian themes, talks a bit about ancestry. There's a very strong nature element. I don't want to ruin anything, obviously, because I think it's best to go into it not knowing much. So there's a little naturalist element there, folklore element, and the imagery in it actually reminded me a little of the movie Annihilation, some snippets. Oh, okay. So just some of the nature-y type stuff, a couple of scenes in particular, and then also, of course, the movie Crimson Peak, which I thought.
1: <laughs> I was going to say that. Del-, Del Toro's Crimson Peak, this sounds along those lines.
0: Absolutely. I think she has definitely. She wants to take that kind of approach to the gothic novel that Crimson Peak took. There's a bit of overlap there and, you know, sometimes they go to these old creaky mansions and you're like, oh, that could be a bit cozy, you know, candlelight. Whereas in in Crimson Peak and this novel, you're like, get me as far away from this mansion as humanly possible. This sounds like a horrible place filled with horrible people. Some of the vibes, and like I said before, it it does pull some comparisons to things like Rebecca, Jane Eyre, you know, our templates for the gothic novel. But I thought it was kind of cool that she tackled this genre. And what I found most interesting is... It's sort of the little town that is in the novel is based on a real town, which had an English settlement there and a mining community and just kind of that history. I didn't really know that that was – I don't really know anything much about that, so I thought that was very interesting uh, that a lot of what's in the novel is based on a real idea. I won't say much more than that. The pace was a bit – Slow to build and then it gets very, <laughs> things get freaky towards the end of the book. But I think that's par for the course sometimes. Like you really want to get seeped in the atmosphere and it does do that well. I will say that Marina Garcia, she does build a really great atmosphere, which is a must for this type of book. Lots of rich imagery and you do get a pretty solid sense of Nomi, our main character as well. I think that I'd question maybe some of the accuracies of the time period. Like I said, it is set in 1950s, but that didn't bother me. Like we're not here for, it's not a documentary. I was kind of okay that maybe some of the, her language or maybe the way things went are a fictionalized version of that time period. I think that's fine. And yeah, it's kind of a period thriller and then quickly turns into there's some horrific stuff towards the end that you'll, you'll get to quickly because it is a very quick read. I will say I think the imagery in it, it's dying for a TV adaptation and I did look up and see <laughs> that there is one uh, that has been kind of being developed right now. So that's going to be developed as a Hulu original. So I think this this kind of material is perfect for that. And just the setting and also the time period plus the, the kind of whole idea I think lends itself very well to a visual adaptation. But overall I would say I was a little disappointed. I was expecting a little more. I think there's better Gothic novels out there. But that being said, I think for what it was doing, it was really interesting. It was a very fast, engaging read. I think that some of the ideas were original pretty pretty original, but I don't think it was anything wildly special. I think it has been quite, it's a very talked about right now. I think they're like me. I think everyone's in the mood for a fun gothic novel and it, it is that for sure and because it is set in Mexico, near Mexico City, I would have liked to see a bit more of that influence in it, but it's set in an, a mansion run by a family of like English people, so it kind of very quickly becomes an English Gothic novel, which that's okay. I think there's still some historical stuff that was quite interesting, like the juxtaposition between that and the small town that's set beneath the high place, which is the house, which is obviously of um, people local to that area. So there's a lot, there's a lot happening, but then also in some stretches of the book, not much, but like I said, the ending, yeah, there's, there's some stuff that happens. I'd be intrigued as to what other people think about that. I haven't read any kind of spoilery reviews or anything. So I wonder how people took the ending. I liked it. I was ready for some action <laughs> by the time that rolled around. So,
1: mm. Well, they can't all be set in the, the sprawling mansion of a, a retired masked Mexican wrestler. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's got to have some normality to it.
0: <laughs> That's it. I actually think it's a pretty decent hybrid. I can see why she may be mixed it that way. So... Mm. What's the book title again? Ah, so this one is called Mexican Gothic. It is by Silvia Moreno-Garcia and I will watch whatever series they produce that's based on the novel for sure. I would recommend it to someone who is just interested in something, likes that kind of gothicy, spooky read but not looking for anything too heavy or too – it's not going to make you try too hard. You'll just be able to enjoy it. You'll just crack it open. You'll finish it quickly. Uh, and then you probably won't remember it, but you'll have enjoyed it. That's That would be my overall takeaway from it. Uh, it's definitely some of the things I've read recently that we've talked about on Zero-G I think have stayed with me more than this novel, but I'm not sorry I read it. So, yeah, Mexican Gothic, decent 1950s Mexican haunted House Gothic novel. Yeah, I mean, accurate title, really.
1: <laughs> I see from the cover it's actually – Got a woman there with a red dress on. So I know we've got a theme going. Yeah, it's all calm in San Diego today. It sounds like it's not too many steps removed from Lovecraft country. Mm-mm. Well, the Del Toro Crimson Peak that was a fairly standard genre gothic horror. So you got the isolated mansion, you've got the the new bride, you've got Mm-mm. the. The horror element in, in Crimson Peak's case, it's uh, ghosts. I've seen one where they went off into the big mansion in the South American jungle. I think it was Brazil. And it's a movie called The Naked Jungle from 1954. Oh. And it stars Charlton Heston and Eleanor Parker. If you've not seen it, find it somewhere. Because it's an amazing, oh, we're going off into the isolated bush, you know, the piano, anything like Mm. that, any of those ones, uh, as you were saying, Jane Eyre or Rebecca and so on. But it takes a sudden turn away from that. Yeah. And I'll say no more if you've not seen it, but it's a a great little movie. It's a bit corny in places, but it's directed by Byron Haskin, produced by George Powell. So you've got those great War of the Worlds sort of technicians working on it. It's based on a short story called Lanagen versus the Ants by Carl Stevenson from 1937, and that's a pretty good story too. Mm. And I've just given away the, uh, <laughs> the the plot twist there. But, yeah, anyway, it's, it's such an interesting genre. I'm surprised that people can still keep ringing changes upon it.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think as well there's been a little revival too because there's been that Netflix adaptation, The Haunting of Hill House, and they've just done another one, The Haunting of Bly Manor. I'd be interested to check those out, actually. Now I'm in a haunted type of mood and I was actually thinking of reading Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Have you read that?
1: I always get this confused with Richard Matheson's Hell House book. Right, right, right. Which is also a great mansion, supernatural.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's it. I feel like I want to maybe, yeah, put a few more of these under the belt. So I might read that. Haunting of Hill House, one might check out that adaptation. Yeah, I I don't know, it's gothic novel season in my mind, even though it's getting into summer,
1: but look. And speaking of under the belt, (laughs) I have been reading, uh, nothing to do with gothic horror, although there are some pretty horrific elements in it. James S.A. Corey, which is a pen name for two separate authors, the first book in their Expanse series, which is called Leviathan Wakes, now, we're going to get to this in a future Zero-G because I think the television show, The Expanse, is one of the finest space opera series I've ever seen, uh, and I wanted to see what sort of an adaptation it was from the book, mm. and it's pretty much straight down the line, and where they have made changes, they've made intelligent changes that actually make it better, you know, so... I'm That's in- no, the- no. Yeah. No, I'm impressed by that. You know, occasionally you do see that um, where you get an idea that that sings even better on the screen than it did upon Mm -hmm. the page. And I've actually done it the wrong way around here. I've watched the series and now I've just read the book. I usually don't do that. And I don't know how I feel about having done that with this one, but we'll get to that at some later date anyway. (laughs) Sometime when we've got a whole episode at least to devote to the expanse. So we can mm. expand upon it a bit more. All right. So having some interesting times at the moment in the pandemic. I'm people's experiences vary the world mm. over, even within our not so great nation. <laughs> but you know, we're all getting through it with the help of our friends and our fiends in Zero G's case. Yes, indeed. And our and our minions and, and everybody else in the world in our particular world. I know sometimes we've been we've been leaning into it on Zero G. It's like, <laughs> you know what? Let's just binge watch a whole zombie series. Yeah. And it's actually surprising how often our zombie apocalypse prepping has come in handy. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Toilet paper, hey. Or was was that for the mummy apocalypse? <laughs> I get all the shuddering and, and shuffling and staggering ones confused.
0: I know very o- lots of overlap, lots of overlap,
1: <laughs> and things are really strange. Like I normally pay no attention to um, football. Oh and yeah, I, and I pay no attention to the grand final. So that very often, a little weeks later, people go, "How about so and so's victory?" And I go, "Yeah, right."
0: <laughs> I am the opposite, but uh, that's where you and I differ. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and we had that this year and I didn't even know where they played it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what teams were playing it. I know now yeah, because yeah. people have told me since, but it all sort of went over my head like a football would do if my reflexes weren't so phenomenally fast like Drax.
0: It was a bit of a strange one this year. I'll, I'll give it that uh, to, to in fitting with a very strange year overall. But, uh
1: yeah. I fully acknowledge the fact that it's a form of geekery that's not mine, but it's still geekery, and I understand what it. How horrible it must have felt to lose that entire season. Yeah. Um, which I'm I'm assuming. So I don't know this. I'm assuming that they played it played it all in other states so that they could have a grand final. Is that right? Yes.
0: Yes, indeed. They shipped them all off to Queensland, and they had a hub up there and they played it up in Brisbane and, yeah, I mean, so a lot of those people were away from their families or split up or, yeah, it was a very specific way they ran it to make it possible. So even though that we got a season, it was a bit of an odd season for everyone involved, but uh, you're right, it wasn't quite the same and I think some fans were, yeah, a bit of a, a low year for some fans.
1: Mm. Oh, well, look, I, I feel sorry for them. At the same time, I'm inhuman enough to have taken some joy out of the silence, the <laughs> yeah. vacuum of sports ball that I've encountered in the last I don't know, six months or have a lot yeah. of runs I, I can't say it's pleasant because that makes me sound awful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> different. It was different.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the other hand, it's zero G. and <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. Like I, hope it, I hope they all get back, you know, you all get back your sports and stuff soon because that would be good. In a safe way though, please.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like we want stuff to go back into production. We want our movies and TV but safely. If sports stuff can happen again, we want that safely. Like we've all got our stuff we love. If those people can be back at their jobs and healthy and everybody's cooperating, I'm all for that across most factions so
1: and i know they've been doing uh racing cars with the racing car drivers doing video games
0: oh really i didn't know that so i suggest
1: (laughs) they they do sports ball with giant robots instead
0: i'm up for that i like robot wars i would absolutely watch that yeah
1: so that's my my piffy advice (laughs) for the (laughs) pandemic Well, that's about it for zero G today. We wandered off there for, for no particular reason, but uh, that's alright. Yeah, that's alright. And we hope you're all doing as well as can be expected out there. Uh, we'll go over Bowie track here, I'm thinking about where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Well, what about the man who sold the world, Mister David Bowie? <laughs> and in this case, we've got a cover, as we often do, by Miriam Ada. And this is from her – well, this is a single that she put out called The Man Who Sold the World, but it actually comes from her larger album of Bowie covers. All right, that's it for Zero G for today. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, and thanks to Triple R for keeping us (laughs) sane during these troubling times. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G. A weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.